Working Class Intelligentsia, a podcast for working class intellectuals about Antonio Gramsci. Start from episode one or jump around to whatever episode looks interesting. When I started this podcast, I wanted to use the topic of Gramsci as a vehicle to discuss what a working class intelligentsia would look like and what a working class intelligentsia would discuss. I was attracted to Gramsci because not only is he a rigorous thinker, but he operates in a framework that does not arrogantly place the intellectual above everyone else, nor does he create obstacles for anyone to become an intellectual. In a couple episodes, when we return to Gramsci, we'll cover a great essay he wrote entitled Socialism and Culture, in which he rejects a brand of working-class anti-intellectualism in Italy. I I realized that I need to talk about the dominant intellectuals uh, of the time, both in Gramsci's day and in ours, the bourgeois intellectuals. On the whole, the Enlightenment was a bourgeois, uh, which is to say capitalist, intellectual movement. We'll discuss this in a little more detail in a subsequent episode. Initially, I thought I would cover the Enlightenment in two, maybe three episodes. Currently, I think we can do it in four, maybe five episodes. I can't promise that everything I cover is directly applicable to Gramsci, though I'm definitely making that my focus and my intention. And I do believe that it is all important in order to understand what a working class intelligentsia should look like. Of course, there is no should that we have to align with, but, you know, I think that Gramsci had a really good idea of what it needed to look like uh, for a number of reasons, which, you know, are the reasons that we're going to cover throughout this podcast. Today, uh, we'll cover religious tolerance, separation of church and state, and individual freedom. Next week, we'll discuss the Industrial Revolution. Possibly next week, we might be able to uh, cover the materialist critique of the Enlightenment, or it might be in the next week. Um, also discover discuss how socialism could be the true fulfillment of the Enlightenment. Once we've done that, we'll be able to get back to talking about Gramsci and his critique of a working class anti-intellectualism. Okay, so I need to take a moment, though, to give a disclaimer. Before we get into it, as I've been preparing these episodes on the Enlightenment, I had a discussion with a friend. He is a pastor, and although he hasn't heard my podcast yet, or at least he hasn't said that he has, uh, much of what he had to say uh, in that conversation was critical of what I've said about the Enlightenment. It was a great, friendly, philosophical discussion, uh, and I was glad that it came up. Um, What I've said is pretty standard stuff about the Enlightenment, 
And it's not so much that he disagrees about what I've said, so much as that he believes that the scientific revolution's incredible achievements caused science to make uh, other truths invisible. So the scientific method begins to break down um, even when investigating quantum physics, for example, uh, let alone metaphysical and philosophical truths. So even when you're looking at quantum physics, um, it starts to suggest that the physical world isn't as uh, physical as uh, one would expect, especially from a Newtonian physics perspective. In the prison notebooks, Gramsci spends a lot of time critiquing positivism among Marxists uh, of his time. Positivism in Gramsci's time was a new face, a new form of uh, Francis Bacon's empiricism. Gramsci's focus uh, when it comes to the positivists was was the positivists that illegitimately used the rhetoric of science to legitimize dehumanization of the peasants of southern Italy, uh, a kind of uh, racism justified through science. But part of the problem was that positivism's central project um, is and was uh, to reduce all knowledge and all truth claims to those derived from the scientific method. You know, the scientific method can only access certain kinds of knowledge. The question then is, what are the limits of the scientific method? So, uh, that being said, let us return to the topic at hand, the moment in human history when the question, among others, um, transforms society. Religious tolerance, separation of church and state. The Enlightenment esteemed reason. Many Enlightenment intellectuals believed everyone could be happy if society were founded on reason. The wars following the Protestant Reformation, wars that warrant their own Wikipedia article entitled European Wars of Religion, caused many to conclude that religion is too dangerous of a foundation on which to base society. Reason and science potentially provided a shared language in contrast with religion, which had created division and strife between Catholics and Lutherans and Calvinists and Anabaptists. Where religion presumed the truth could only be found through sectarian faith, reason offered a shared reality on which everyone could agree. But of course, this shared reality came at the cost of the deeply held belief of the faithful, and even worse, as Marx would argue, it threatened the power of the existing ruling class, the aristocracy and the church that were closely wed to the state and other existing institutions of power. For now, let us focus on the ideas of the Enlightenment, and then we will return later, in the next episode, to a materialist class analysis of the Enlightenment. It is impossible to say who was the most important thinker of the Enlightenment, of course, but John Locke was up there. He was an important empiricist philosopher, 
a foundational philosopher in social contract and private property theory, a contributor to the fundamental constitutions of Carolina in America in 19... Sorry, definitely not 19... In uh, 1669, and was a major influence over Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Locke's letters concerning religious tolerance, controversial at the time, has become part of the foundation of Western society. He argued that one cannot know that one's own religion is the one true religion. Everyone who is religious believes theirs is the most true. One must presume humility one must admit that it would be foolish to deny an inkling of doubt. But even if one did know that their religion was the one true religion, coercion can never transform the heretic into a true believer. Politically persecuting those of other religious communities is futile. Persecution will never save anyone from hellfire. Free choice and persuasion are necessary ingredients to belief one must allow those of other religions or those without religious belief to be free to choose to worship in the way they believe best. In fact, coercion is destructive to the health of society. Coercion and persecution sow seeds of fear and distrust, rotting the foundation of cooperation and trade. Essentials for a robust economy. Essential for a robust society. Society cannot flourish without religious freedom, without the separation of church and state. But now let's talk about individual freedom. Up to this point, we have focused on the Enlightenment's invention of the scientific method and the philosophical gaps it created and the challenge it made to Christianity. We discussed how the scientific method laid seeds of doubt in everything, undermining the authority of the church and church dogma, as the church lost authority, the Enlightenment said the individual was responsible to use reason to arrive at their own understanding of the truth. But giving this responsibility to the individual came with significant political consequences. One cannot hold the individual responsible if the individual was not endowed with the freedom to arrive at the conclusions themselves. The Enlightenment resulted in liberalism. Today we use the word liberal to describe people with socially liberal politics, but liberalism in the Enlightenment referred to a political philosophy in which the government created a space in which individuals were then free to determine for themselves what was good and what was virtuous. After all, the root word of liberal is liberty. John Locke is known as the father of liberalism. As I mentioned earlier, Locke is often cited as foundational to our modern conception of private property, a central theme of liberalism. While there is no concise description of liberalism that captures all who self-identify as liberals, it is generally accepted that liberalism recognizes the individual's right to life, liberty, and property, and insists the government earns its legitimacy by defending these rights and refraining from infringing upon them. The government's role is to enforce these rights, and to do so in a way that respects equality before the law. No one is above the law, not even the king. The French believed this so passionately that they executed King Louis XVI. 
excuse me. Uh, side note, we will discuss the French Revolution in a bit more detail in just a few episodes. Okay, so the American Revolution and the founding of the United States was another famous revolution tied to the Enlightenment. Many of the same philosophical ideas that inspired the French Revolution lit the revolutionary fuse in America. One of America's greatest revolutionary rhetoricians, Thomas Paine, even traveled to France to take part in the action there. In the spirit of the times, America removed the king completely out of the picture, establishing a republic with a, quote, president, someone who would only be expected to preside over the executive branch of the republic. Enlightenment values placed checks and balances upon the president, ensuring that he or she could not become another despotic king or queen out of touch with the will of the people, oppressing the individual's freedom. The executive, legislative, and judicial branches all were given the responsibility to limit the powers of the others, and America's founding fathers, as they had been called, were Enlightenment thinkers that believed Americans would find individual freedom as a result of living under a system of checks and balances such as this. So America also placed an emphasis on freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Elsewhere, such as in France, Germany, and Russia, the king or czar used his authority to censor the publications of dangerous and revolutionary Enlightenment ideas. In America, at least more than in the aforementioned countries, emerging liberal ideas posited that society was better when individuals were free to utilize their own rational faculties to arrive at their own conclusions about what is true and what is good. A few minutes earlier, I mentioned John Locke and his belief that everyone should have the right to life, liberty, and private property. For reasons that are unclear to historians, Thomas Jefferson and the editors of the Declaration of Independence modified Locke's idea only slightly when they wrote, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Individual Americans live under the assumption that their individual rights will be respected, bringing them out of the Middle Ages into the modern era. Okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, but one last comment. Um, I just said a sentence. Individual Americans live under the assumption that their individual rights will be respected. I wanted to clarify uh, something in closing. While this may be true for many people, you're probably listening to this podcast because you recognize that the Enlightenment has failed to live up to its promise, whether you were able to articulate it in that way or not is besides the point. I apologize, but I'm going to stretch out our coverage of the Enlightenment, as I've said, uh, to one or two more episodes. Um, we will get back to Gramsci eventually, I promise. Uh, this has been enough for this episode, um, but next time we'll cover Marx's critique of the Enlightenment. Um, well, we're going to cover the Industrial Revolution, and then I hope uh, that we'll have time to cover 
Marx's critique of the Enlightenment, which is essentially um, grounded in the Industrial Revolution, and um, talk about how the Enlightenment really can be considered a bourgeois Enlightenment, uh, but also, um, if we have time, we'll talk about how socialism could be the true fulfillment of the promise of the Enlightenment. Um, at least that's what uh, we as socialists intend it to be.